All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Adelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, What the Fuck, WTF. Sorry, kids. I know you're driving, Mom. I know you're driving, Dad. I know. I know sometimes you go ahead and let them listen, and that was a lot of F-bombs in a fairly short period, but no more than usual, really, was it? How are the kids? Everybody all right? Everybody okay? Are they growing up fine? Are they turning out all right? You know, I just got back from St. Louis, and I had a great time in St. Louis. Had a great time. I'm not going to ramble too far here before I tell you that Gary Goleman is on the show. Gary Goleman. He's been on before a long time ago. Back on, like, episode 357. That was 2013. And since then, he's released several comedy albums and televised specials, including The Great Depression on HBO. In 2019, he's now written his first book, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. This guy's gone through it, man, and he's come out the other side for the most part, I would say. And we'll get into it, man. We'll get into it. But it was heavy, man. It was heavy, and Gary's uh, doing all right. And we'll have that conversation uh, momentarily. I'll be at Wise Guys in Las Vegas this Friday and Saturday, September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. I'm in Bellingham, Washington at the Mount Baker Theater for one show on Saturday, October 14th as part of the Bellingham Exit Festival. Portland, Oregon, sold out. Sorry. 20 through 22nd of October, all sold out. Then I'm at the Chemo Theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico for one show on November 11th, my hometown. In Denver, Colorado, I'll be at the Comedy Works South for four shows, November 17th and 18th. And I'll be at um, Comics Come Home, whenever that is, in November. So look, I, uh, I was in St. Louis. I did some morning radio. It was the Rizzuto Show. Yes, 105.7 The Point with Riz, Moon Valjean, King Scott, Rafe Williams, and Learn. Quite a crew. Walked in there. It was on fire right away. Great morning crew. Had a great time. It was fun, you know, because they give you this option. A lot of these places, they were like, you want to do a phone? Or I'm like, what am I going to, what am I doing in St. Louis in the morning? I'm not a child. I'm not a drunk. I can wake up and go to the place. Phoners are useless. You got to get into the same airness for the real exchange. That's what you, we've got to get back to same airness. All these Zoom conversations all these text conversations, it's not good. You may think you're talking, but you're not. You're not feeling the vibrations in the room. You're not breathing the same air. People, commune. Get back to same airness as often as you can. All right? So I went into Rizzuto's show, talked to the, the guys and the gal, some people misunderstand. I like morning radio. Yeah, I did a joke about morning radio, but a good crew in the morning, you walk in, all they're wanting you to do is like kind of get in there. And God knows I know how to do that. We had an excellent time. Good crew. And then I did that. And then I did, a, I did another show. 
That guy was pretty good too. KMOX. Believe the guy's name was Roger. Had a good time. That was afternoon radio, afternoon talk. Just got in there, got in there, knocked out a segment. Rizzuto let me stay on for like two segments, I think. But there comes that moment where they're sort of like, hey, you know, we were talking about something before you got here. We'd like to get back to that. Uh, they don't say it like that, but I could tell they're sort of like, all right, so that uh, Mark Marin's at Helium and he's leaving. We were talking about aliens and then he came in and did his thing, but let's get back to that. I get it. I did morning radio. I get it. Oh, Tamara, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. The owner and uh, proprietor of the chain of Clementine's Creamery, the ice cream, artisanal ice cream. And, and this is not a paid plug. It's probably the best ice cream in the fucking country, at least. So creamy, so good. But I can't eat the dairy, right? Because I'm doing the veggie, the veggie, the veggie, the veggie, the, huh? the vegan thing. But she uh, she got in touch with me. She said, do you want to see the new plant where we're making the ice cream? I'm like, fuck yes. And then comes the 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 benefit, the perks. She's like, I'm going to have the uh, ice cream genius down at the plant. Let you sample some of our new and as yet unreleased vegan flavors. So I just go to this plant. They have freezers the size of my house. Refrigerator the size of this studio. Just people making ice cream. Had to wear a hat, gloves, footies, walk through some suds, no germs. But I went into the, the kitchen, the tasting kitchen, and there was like five or six pints. And I'm like, let's go. I'll try it. And they wanted my opinion. There were three varieties of coconut macaroon ice cream. I went with the richest tasting one. There was a bit of an argument with that. They had a sweet potato ice cream that was fucking amazing. They had, uh, I guess they're sorbets, are they? Sorbets, quite good. Trying to remember another flavor. There was an avocado one that was, I didn't mind it. It was okay. There was a crumble one. God damn. And I considered it a meal. I considered it a vegan meal, tasting about six or seven Many spoons of ice cream, separate spoons every time. And they were metal spoons, but we kept changing them. We kept cha- changing the spoon. Felt official. Felt like, a, like a, you know, I felt like I, I had to behave myself as opposed to just kind of covet one and step into another room with a larger spoon and just fucking wolf it down. But uh, that was fun. And then uh, hung out with Tamara for a little while, went to uh, eat some good vegan joints in St. Louis. Awesome. A, a car, I think, was one I went to. I went to Frida's. I went to a place called Small Batch twice. But the high point outside of the shows was Euclid Records. Euclid Records, I would say, outside of, you know, my buddy Dan's shop here is my favorite record store. You hear me? I'm not looking for perks. I'm not looking for anything. I'm not paid to say this, but uh, Euclid Records, my buddy Steve down there, the whole crew down at Euclid, they're always nice to me. I spent two days at Euclid Records at about two hours each day, and I didn't even get to the jazz section. Two days. As you know, I was at Helium. 
There's a great staff at Helium, but all the shows were pretty exciting because I'm doing this new hour 15 or so and I'm structuring it and it was good. And the audiences were great. They came to see me and it, they all filled out all the shows, the five shows. But I will say this. I will say this. Look, you know, I work here at the comedy store and uh, it's a great club. And Helium, the room itself, is great. It's a fine comedy venue. But a couple of things happened uh, that I thought, like, I thought I'd experienced all the shitty things that can happen on stage at a comedy club, but I was wrong. I have a new thing for the list. Okay? Look, the relationship between club owners and uh, comics, you know, it's fraught sometimes, you know, certainly coming up when I did. You, all you had to, the only place you could for, perform was at the comedy club. You weren't going to make any waves. You know, even if you didn't get paid, you'd whine to other comics, maybe get your money. Even if the club owner had suggestions for your act, you'd suck it up and listen. Tom Sawyer. <laughs> but, but let me tell you something, man. I don't know. Maybe you've heard it on this show, but the worst part about doing comedy club comedy is that it's a it's a bar business they're selling drinks and that's fine we get it and because of that even if they sell food there's a check spot there is a check drop during your set we've grown to live with it that usually right towards the end of your set and some clubs you know maybe at the beginning of the last third of your set they're going to be dropping those checks and people are going to get distracted. They're going to be distracted with math and money. And you can feel the attention go away for a bit and it comes back. But this is something, this is the, this is the, the job we've chosen. And you get used to it. It just is what it is. It's a rare club that doesn't have a check spot. So on Thursday night, I'm doing my set. And all of a sudden I hear like a digital beep. I'm like, what? What's going on? And then I heard another one. What the fuck is happening? Is that someone's phone? Is that a watch? And then another one and another one and another one. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And it's the goddamn point of sale machines. I have to assume that they make them where they don't make noise or you could turn the fucking thing off. But during the check spot, during the, the pay time, like right when you're coming into your big bits, there's just a, a fragmented, scattered chorus of digital beeps. I never thought in my life as a comic that there would be an audible check drop. And it just goes on and on for 15 minutes. Beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, I don't know what the ownership thinks that we can't hear it. So I brought attention to it, but then people notice it more. But I just could not fucking believe it. And apparently it's a, it's a franchise-wide system they have. So I'm going to be in, in Portland at Helium. So I'm, I'm anticipating the, uh, the sort of random beeping for 20 minutes, starting about two-thirds of my... I've never... I just... And I'm no diva, people. We don't ask for much. A mic, a mic stand maybe a stool. That's about it. Everything else is a perk. But man, never thought in my life that there would be a audible check spot. Just, I, it, I lost my mind. I lost my fucking mind. 
And apparently, word on the street is, been going on for a couple years. But I guess people just, I don't know. They don't want to say it. It was something else, people. Anyway, that was my experience. I've added a new shitty thing that happens on stage to my list of shitty things. And maybe you don't care, but it was something. So listen, Gary Goldman is here. He's got a new book out. It's called Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. Comes out tomorrow, September 19th. This is not a trigger warning, but heads up. This is a real conversation about pretty drastic mental health issues. This is me talking to Gary Goldman. You all right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, caught up on your stuff, and I can... (laughs) I think that's the first question. Are you all right, man? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really a that's a great question. My my <laughs> my friend Mike, who directed my yeah. special about being depressed, he said he had worked with Letterman on the Netflix Letterman, so they became friendly. And he, yeah. And it turns out that Dave had the same psychiatrist as as me. This guy. Yeah. I saw him in the in the special. Yeah. Yeah. And and. And Dave called my friend and said, uh, how's the kid doing now? <laughs> when was this? It was when it first aired. He, he watched it. He said it was a, a good special. He yeah. said, how's the, how's the kid now? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's an and honest I, question. Yeah. And I, I, I will say I've had five years now of uninterrupted remission. So I'm very, very grateful. So that's the word that they use for depression too? Remission? That's that's the one that feels the the most accurate to describe what's going on. I mean, I I could say recovery, sure. but then I feel like I'm appropriating. The well, that's rooms. interesting because, like you know, I I I think that once you get diagnosed with the profound depression that you had, yeah, that you know, I think most people waver. Sometimes people get depressed and then they're kind of depressed and then they have a good day. So so you don't look at it in terms of remission unless it's a chronic condition right. that that took right. it yes. that took it where it took you. Yes. Right? Yes. Cuz you know everybody is on the spectrum of uh, totally of some sort. Of, and I I like that about the special about sort of destigmatizing mental illness and I thought that your mathematics around side effects was kind of funny. Oh, thank you. In terms of... Uh, kind of funny. That's what I shoot for. Yeah. No, no, no. Because, <laughs> like, you know, when you're doing stuff that is... And I've done it, too, that, that is rooted in, in something, you know, serious and dire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what you know, there's a message there. So kind right. of funny is not an insult. No. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I you get know, it. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about serious stuff. And, and, and I imagine, not unlike when I talked about grief, that right. you, you, you have to find the balance. Yes. Because yes. The, the guarantee is that it's sad and off-putting and, and makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> 100%. I mean, that, that's a given. Yes. So, like, there's, there's nothing you can do yeah. about that. Yeah. So, so then over time... You know, the balance becomes sort of like, how do I balance that reality with, with the humor? Totally. Right? Yes. But like the last time I talked to you was in uh, 2013. Yeah. So like, and I don't remember you being depressed. No, I, I had never had a lengthy, like two and a half year episode. I would have six weeks, yeah. eight weeks, and then come back and recover. And it it I never felt that great. I never felt... As suicidal, I'd always felt since I was seven years old. I yeah. always had this idea 
that I was going to end by my own hands and that it was just which crisis would would bring that about would it be a divorce would it be uh the grief over a, over a parent yeah. or a loved one yeah. and and i i fought it pretty pretty um what's the word i'm i'm looking for valiantly for a long time and then at 45 yeah. it it came in in such strength and and uninterrupted that I had to for the first time in my life be checked into the hospital for you know on two separate occasions well that's what you for, talked about yeah. during the in the special the great yeah. depression yeah but that was you just talked about one time yeah but there was a there was a second time that was that was not that was at, a follow-up that was a that was a that was a follow-up <laughs> in which I it, it's funny because I I listened to Maria Bamford yeah. the other day the, yeah. the interview that you did a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about her hospitalization and it was it was kind of similar in that I went to a I went to a, an emergency room one time one time I planned it and there was a calendar and and I was going to be there for a month and the other time I just didn't feel safe in my apartment and my wife took me to the emergency room yeah. and they admitted me right away and I stayed for 3 or 4 days until they wanted to move me to take advantage of the new insurance that I had that was different from from the one I had. So you got an upgrade? Or? No. They asked me if I wanted to go to this other hospital, and I said, well, I'm not familiar with it, so I was frightened by it, and I and I just went, went home. And the, the key is always never telling them that you feel like you're a danger to yourself, and then they'll eventually then they'll let get you, out. Then you'll, they'll let you go eventually. So If you don't tell them that. If you don't tell them that. You know, when I watch it, because, you know, I... Like I've been talking about trauma a bit on stage and, you know, and I come from depression and, you know, suicidal ideation. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had most of my life as well. I, my joke was different than yours. I, what was your joke about it? About, uh, about, oh, the essay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That that I I did. You, I, you got to leave a note if you're if you're a conscientious person. You should leave a note. Yeah. And I just I I always dreaded writing essays, <laughs> and that's what kept you alive. Yeah. My my joke about suicidal ideation is like you know I think about suicide all the time. It's not because I want to kill myself. It just makes me feel better knowing that I can if I have to. Oh yes, a hundred percent. So there's that moment where you type where it's just you typing. You're like fuck. Yes. What am I going to do? So like I can yes. always kill myself. Oh, okay. Yes. I, yeah, I always think it's about soothing. that in terms. It's soothing in terms of if the worst thing were to happen, I could always kill. Myself. Or even if it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Well, because like, because of where I'm at now in terms of my own mental health, you know, and trying to assess, you know, I'm going to be 60 this month. Uh, you know, I've decided, and I'm I'm talking to you like this because when I watch your special, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he could help me. So, like, as opposed maybe. to maybe as opposed to go to a doctor. I'm just going to, you know, you know, drain you of your resources. <laughs> I've I've accumulated quite a bit of resources it seems through, like it. through reading and and also I, I have really good I have really good professionals in my life. So I, I've been Well, I don't go really like well it seems like I mean I remember when I was in college I drove up to McLean's hospital. Oh, I love that. <laughs> to see a guy but and back then it was early on in the uh, psychopharmaceuticals. There was like one guy Oh, okay. I think it, who did one guy in New York, I think his name was Klein. And then there was a guy, you know, cause my, my cousin had issues and there was a guy at McLean's, but I, I can't remember wh why I was there. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I, I think I was depressed, but not unlike you and, and what you sort of talk about in your book that there, there was an awkwardness to, you know, how I felt in relation to other people. 
A hundred percent. Yes. You I, know, and you hear that yeah. in, in alcoholic stories all the time. Totally. Yeah. But you say it was, it, I, I really fight the, the idea that I'm depressed if I am. Oh, I always think it's just me that I am a, a, a lazy person who, mm. who isn't very talented and, and isn't very a, attractive. Yeah, what's that and, got to do with it, though? And, uh, <laughs> because because I, I think, well, why wouldn't I feel lousy about myself? I've got oh. nothing going for me. So you couldn't tell? You couldn't, I couldn't tell that that was a depressive symptom. Not that just that a was self-esteem the, problem. Exactly. Yeah. Because for me, what I've just what I've come upon in my uh, in my research into myself, which is deep, you know, but there's always <laughs> yeah. a, a blind side, is that I suffer from profound anxiety. Sure. And and when that gets out of hand, you enter a sort of paralysis, yes. like a dread fueled yes. paralysis yes. that you know looks like depression, but may yes. not be. Yes. That's and, what I decided. And I've heard you describe <laughs> your naps as many suicides. And I think that did is I? one of the most brilliant. <laughs> when did I do that? I like Depictions that. of what I was doing was yeah. that was I would either be anxious or feel very overwhelmed by life. And I would take these long naps and then those naps become 16 hours sleeping. Become days. days. Yeah. And, and that's, that was a lot of my coping mechanism. And then it got so bad that my, my wife at one point, and she would describe me as as being a catatonic. She would say, "I thought you were, I thought you were dying." My dad. See, that's the thing is, my dad was a depressive, but and it was you know we assumed it was bipolar. But I always tried like my brain, for some reason. I imagine you were like this too. Was that is that you know I wanted it to be um, uh, what what's the word symptomatic of experience? Sure. Like I didn't, I didn't want to believe it was chemical. Like, and I, it's not that I know, I know that exists. Right. But I wanted it to be relative to uh, a, a type of, of, of thinking or trauma or, or experience or emotional liabilities. Like I didn't really want to believe that it was a chemical thing. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're younger, that it's got to totally. be me. It's got to be me. Yes. And Do you then- have it in your family? Oh my gosh! My father was born at Danvers State Hospital. His his you mean mother, he was born institutionalized? Yeah, because my my grandmother was bipolar and she had had an episode while she was pregnant with him, and so that's where he was born. And then he was put into foster care. Eventually, really? Yeah, eventually he was adopted by his grandparents, and then his. His mother got well, but when we talk about well, she what, was just that's back in the day. Though she was what just that heavily medicated with lithium. lithium. Yeah, and and she was just she was. I never got to enjoy any aspect of her personality. I heard before before her breakdown that she was very personable and fun and and would have moments, but she would also have have manic swings and and she was just heavily medicated in every interaction I ever had with her. So she was sort of just kind of in the in the corner silent. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, so you remember her? I do remember her. And then my on my mother's side, my mother's twin brother, and my mother would never admit this in a million years. My yeah. mother's twin brother was. Uh, he was a fence. He was a burglar and a, and a fence. Yeah. And, and he was, and he, who never bathed. Like yeah. he was just, he was clearly, there was something wrong with him mentally and nobody would ever acknowledge it. So it, it, it definitely runs on both sides of my, my family. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that's interesting that, but your father's not a depressive. 
My father was not a depressive, but he was out of his mind. In the, is in he the, alive? He's no longer alive. My mother is alive. She's yeah. 90. My father passed away a few years older ago. Older parents. Older, much older. I was born when my father was around 50. My mother was around 40. But but the book starts when you, when you after you get out of being treated yeah. in the hospital, yeah. in the psych ward with yeah. electroconvulsive therapy. Yes. You're just left with no other recourse, you know, in terms of emotionally and otherwise, but to go live with your mother yes. in the house you grew yes. up in. Yes. I guess the the thing that I'm, I'm curious about is that about being comics, because I've noticed that somehow you're, you're kind of transitioning into, into something that isn't fundamentally, you know, club work. Right, 100%. and 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 there yeah. is sort of this point where either you have more to say or you want to speak to something, you know, personal in, in a way that you feel supported by your audience. Sure. Uh, so you do that because I, I, you and I came up similarly. I yeah. mean, I'm I'm older than you, but like I was a, an angry Jewish kid that came out of you know uh, Boston University. I went to, out here for a while, got fucked up on drugs, and I went back, and I started doing one-nighters. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing Dick Doherty shows. I'm doing all the, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the one-nighters all over the... Me and I, when I look back at it, though, though, I don't know who that guy was. It was somebody... You had to adjust to the audiences because... But it was crazy. You're playing for townies in yes. Lemonster. Yes. At a place called Pancho Villas. <laughs> yeah, and 99 doing... restaurants. Right. Yeah. But now... How much of you believe, now I did drugs as well, but do you believe that initially that comedy or, or the attraction to it, because I haven't really thought about this, was in, an, in a way self-medicating? Ah, yes. Yes, it was self-medicating in that you feel this, this rush of dopamine and acceptance and you were, get, you were getting attention as a kid from this. And, and, but also on the other side, and you hear from this people online all the time mm. about how your comedy soothes them or makes them feel less alone. Right. And I found that from listening to people at the, at the time, it was, it was people like, like Stephen Wright and yeah. Richard Pryor and yeah. Bob Newhart and, and they would make me so happy. And I, and I would, and Steve Martin was a big album that my, my brothers had. And, but what about and, the guys who were going at like Kevin Knox? Oh and, my and gosh. Don, Don when Gavin. I went, when I went in high school, to see at Nick's Comedy Stop, I saw guys like Sweeney yeah. and Don Gavin, and to me they were they were gods. Sweeney. They were they were. But the thing is, is that like that essentially though, like if we're talking about what we do and what they do, and what my appeal, my attraction to comedy initially was that it wasn't that it made me feel less alone. It made me it relieved me because it gave me a way to look at things and it made me laugh. And it's sort of like I think part of the 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 appeal of comedy for me was that you could make sense of the world in this very specific way and share it. Right. Yeah. So when I watch any of those guys or Rickles or anybody else, I don't know if it made me feel less alone, but it made me laugh and it made me feel more Jewish and it made sure. me, uh, you know, feel like it, it was able to disarm, you know, yeah. sadness, fear yeah. and, and contextualize yeah. things in a way that I found very relieving, but the sort of less alone thing, to me, is a sort of new byproduct of what we do. Yeah, I th I think that when you talk were, honestly, there were three comedians back then. One has passed away, Gary Shandling. Sure. One is in disrepute, Woody Allen. Yeah. And and one I think is is ill, Richard Lewis. But they were. I talked to him a, a week or so ago. How is he doing? He's okay. You should do his podcast. I'll tell him. I would love to. 
because those three guys were were Jewish men who were talking about being being sad, failing. Yes. Those and guys being made honest, you feel less alone, and yes. they made me feel less alone. So that was a that was a great connection. It's it's so funny because my mother for my bar mitzvah took me to L.A. to see the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Gary Shandling and Carrie Fisher were the were the guests, yeah. and it, and it's one of my all time memories. I'll I'll never forget that. Yeah, and I had never heard of Gary. Shandling, and then he became like my go-to comedian because he soon thereafter had the It's Gary Shandling show, sure. which was uh, illuminating and revelatory, and then the, of course, the Larry Sanders show, which is just Great. one of the most accurate I guess depictions. That, uh, I guess that's right. I, I guess, like you know, I'm overlooking that that the that Jewishness was a big part of it, yeah, and that, and it scares me now. Because there is a, a, a comedy's become tribalized, and there are people that are like, you know, what's with all this whiny comedy? Which is code. It's a dog whistle for Jews. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and I I think when when I would listen to Rodney Dangerfield or people like that. Yeah. Now I like I do this little gag with with Todd Glass where he plays Rodney Dangerfield and yeah. I play a friend who's uh gone through cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And I'll say Rodney, you can't say you get no respect. Yeah. You don't get as much respect as you'd like. Right. But I respect you and and I th- I think you need to change your doctor. Yeah. Dr. Vinny Bumbutz is yeah. not not, is not is not helpful. He's he's insulting. Yeah. But but I I I totally get that. That, but he didn't that, identify as a Jew, really. No, no. But it, but it was so Jewish. Rickles it was so did. Jewish, but a working class Jew, right. which we didn't recognize. We we recognize. I love him, of, and I yeah. really, I don't think he did get the respect that he deserved when he was alive. No, no. You know, like I I, I think that people have rethunk him. Yeah. You know, that I think that people like Norm Macdonald. Yes. You know, who is a, a was a tremendous proponent of Dangerfield, yeah. and even me as I get get older, I watch him more. That, you know, there was, you know, when you watch him on the old Carsons and he's, you realize he's incapable of just talking. <laughs> that when he runs out of jokes, yeah. it's over. Yeah. He speaks, there, he speaks in, in jokes, but there was, there was something about him and, and Bill Murray where they were losers, admittedly losers, but they seemed to have confidence. Right. And, and, and that I found that like Chris Elliott was another person that I, that I admired so much growing up because he was, especially on the Get a Life show, he was living with his parents. Parents. He yeah. was a paper boy, and yet he was arrogant, and he was pushy, and he was demanding, and I and I always aspired to that because I felt like a loser, and I thought, all right, I'll be, I'm a loser, but at least I'll I'll act like I deserve something more than to be ignored. But the, but the thing is, it's interesting to me about you is that and and you know you you were not. No one would have known necessarily. No, and, nobody and, had and, any idea. And and the truth is, is that you know, our because I'm a very sensitive guy, and you know, and it, but like I like I think in a differently than you, maybe because you know my parents were fundamentally sort of selfish uh, in a way. Well, yeah, I'm sure you had it too. That we were sort of left to construct our own selves. Yes. And you know, it sometimes it holds, sometimes it doesn't. But I yeah. I sought to get hard. And, and, and I saw it, you know, drugs and alcohol and I, and I leaned into anger and, you know, now that I'm old and like, I feel a little safer around my own vulnerability, you know, it's still, you know, touch and go in the sense that, and I think doing stand up like you're doing where you're, you know, exploring these elements of your childhood and of trauma and of depression, you gain more confidence yes. in, in, in speaking from that place. Yes. But like, I still force myself to go out and do regular club comedy. 
No, I know that. And, 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 I, and I don't always know why, but I feel like I have to stay in shape. Like I have to be able to go like, why are you fucking talking? I used to do that. I used to do that. I would go to the comedy cellar two, three nights. Uh, and that place is not easy. It's not easy. I would do two or three shows a night on the weekends, right. all weekend That's what long, you're supposed to do. And it felt, it got to be like I was doing road work. Right. Because they were not there to see me, and they would talk, and they were eating. Whenever they're serving snack chips yeah. in the front row, it, it drives me insane, and I just, I decided that it was much easier on my constitution and my mental state to do... Hours in in small clubs where I could fill fifty or sixty and work people out the stuff and work out the stuff and that and that's been so helpful and I and I really feel that it doesn't make me a better club comic but it makes me a better version of of me as a as a stand up but but there's the thing is that like because social media and and ability to to find an audience has become sort of you know micromanageable yeah that and especially if you're talking about things that people you know that are universals in in a thorough way yeah you'll find your people definitely but i still got some kind of weird dumb you know old school working class comic disposition where it's sort of like you got to be able to yeah. go up in front of any audience and do the fucking job yeah that's yeah. the goal. Yeah. But I, I also felt the goal was always to find your own audience so right. you could be your most authentic self. Yeah. And that, because I'll do well at the Comedy Cellar, but they're enjoying my jokes. They're not enjoying me. Yeah, but me. it's only 15 minutes. Yeah. But it is yeah. you, but it's just not the ones that, you know, you're, you feel satisfying. You know? Right. You, and you, know, you can, it's like, it's, to me, it's it's all about those those obscure references yeah. or those really deep feelings that I, that I feel most comfortable sharing with an audience that knew they were going to see me. Of course. Yeah. But so still, though, well, maybe this is a better way to look at it. We need to do the clubs to stay in shape in a way. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to get too lazy. No, uh, totally. And and also- That's not the, even the right word. There's also, there's also the, the social aspect of it. In, yeah, it's in, our, it's in our that, guys. Yeah, and that we, we get out of the house for the Right, and you have Bobby evening. Kelly on. You picked a good guy. That guy, <laughs> like, for such a, a, a bombastic fuck, is one of the sweetest guys in the world. Oh, he's and, the sweetest. And, and very capable of talking. You know, he can, he can receive- yeah, the full spectrum of emotional yes. problems just yes. from his own recovery. He's so versatile. Yeah, he's yeah. he's 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 the best. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a so great talented. guy. We used to wait tables together in the in the, on Newbury Street in Boston. He got me the job. Oh yeah, we, yeah. So we're we're very close even beyond. Are you comedy. doing the comics come home? No, uh, no. For some yeah. reason, I, I haven't been invited back since like 2011 or that something That guy's like too that. sad. You know, Larry, <laughs> Larry's like, ah, fuck that guy. Last time I made everybody cry. I'm not gonna fucking have that guy back on again. <laughs> That could, be, that could be possible. Although, although I, I, don't, I don't think I was doing anything about depression the last time I was there. I just, but we all I, knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't have known because I didn't see you enough. And I'm very sensitive to it. So there, you must have been managing pretty well. But I, was, like, I was managing really well. And the, and the thing was is that if I was out, I was feeling okay. But my question to you is then, knowing all this stuff about the, the parents and knowing what I came through and our different trajectories around mental health, you don't think that any of that caused it? Oh, of course it did. Yeah, of, of course it did. But I also think there's a there's a biological a, a, component. a chemical component, and I I don't know what the what the percentages right, right. are. It's not. I guess it's not really important. Yeah, I, I I just know that a combination of of 
therapy and medication, and and I, I don't want to undersell the the power that the electroconvulsive therapy had on on sort of rebooting. And and I've read that in uh, Michael Pollan's book about yeah. changing your mind that yeah. that psilocybin mushrooms can have a similar effect in in rebooting your system and taking you out of. Yeah, a, I'd like a, to see a, the long studies on that. Yeah, I, I, well, they don't I'll, exist because it's been such a, sh- a, a short investigation. But you're yeah. right. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like you know, I, I get it. I'm doing a joke about that too, about how uh, you know, because uh, I'm sober a long time. Yeah, no, I know. And now I, I know these guys who are you know sober as long as me who are getting prescribed weed. And when you're this oh. sober, you know what's up. And they're right. like, well, I got a yeah. doctor's prescription. Yeah. I'm like, but you know yeah. what you're doing, right? Totally. But then I do this bit I agree about with that. Uh, about uh, I say, uh, so how's that work? You go to the doctor, and he's like, so you're depressed? I'm like, I am a little bit. And he says, uh, well, you know, there's been a lot of studies, and they find uh, a pretty effective treatment for depression is just getting really fucking high. <laughs> <laughs> but then. <laughs> But then yeah. I say about is say like, oh, if you're having you know trauma issues, you know, I can prescribe some microdoses because they find that nothing shakes trauma loose like tripping balls. I don't know <laughs> if you know that, but but I I mean I don't know enough about smoking marijuana mm. all day every day. Yeah. But the, it, I do. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's a a, a healthy or but, or or a, any kind of I I I don't think it has I, I think there's no free lunch is what I'm saying is that is that eventually I think it could I think what, what what I just noticed when you were talking is that like you know whether it comes from you know conditioning or 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 chemical and this is a combination of the two but I think what gets exacerbated if you have a a predisposition to depression is that whatever your parents are hiding in terms of their uh, incapacity to be uh, um, emotionally supportive and selfless enough to to manage uh, being a parent properly yeah. uh, creates a loneliness, right? That yeah. that is deeper. It, it's something you can't identify, and yeah. that exacerbates the biological component. I would think. Yeah. Does that I, make sense? Totally, because I find that there are certain days where. I'll have done a lot of things. Yeah. I'll exercise and I'll do some writing and I'll be feeling really down. And the missing component was that my wife was gone all day and I hadn't talked to anybody. And right. then I'll be out at night and right. I'll be with people. And that's really important. And my house was very lonely. My brothers were grown. My mother was either working or in her own world. Right. And, it was, and it was very lonely. And to this day, one of my biggest sensitivities and triggers is just hearing about anyone's loneliness or experiencing loneliness, or songs about loneliness. Yeah. That I don't know if you're a Pearl Jam fan, but there's sure. that song about the elderly woman who's working at the at the cash register yeah, and, yeah. and sees somebody from her childhood, and it's just it's so forlorn, and it just it makes me cry almost every time I hear it, and I've heard it a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. Well, music's like that. It's it's yeah. a magic tear maker. Yeah, I, I I cry very easily at things. Me too. I, I don't weep I'm, outwardly, but I and no, I'm, I sob. I'm like a crybaby, and I, and I stifle it. You know, like if oh, I'm sitting with my girlfriend and I, we're in a movie, I just like I'm just holding it in. Yeah, but you know, there's I, a tear running down my face. I watched Harold and Maude oh, yeah. recently that yeah. I'd put off my entire life because I knew I would feel and I knew it yeah. was going to be heartbreaking. Right. And I watched it, and the only thing I was grateful for was that my wife didn't see the 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 <laughs> violent sobbing because i i felt like oh she'll never feel safer around me because i i just i can't was keep it together. I, I can't keep it t- together it was just the the saddest thing but at the same time it was the most joyful film i'd ever seen yeah, yeah. 
but there was that component. I, I, I guess it's a very good metaphor for, for existence because there's well, right. Yeah. Well, it's that balance that we talked about earlier of, of, you know, the reality of sadness, Yeah. you know, and, and trying to sort of, you know, create a, uh, you know, a counterbalance of humor yeah. to sort of balance it. And, yes. and, and, and that's sort of a, a real challenge. Yes. And, and I think it, a lot of us do it innately and some guys just don't do it at all with the, with just jokes. Right. But even when you look at somebody like a tell, there's never a doubt that, that it tells a, a sad guy. Right. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you, yeah. you never think like, well, yeah. this guy's got it together. Yeah. <laughs> she's just writing. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. like, he's sort of almost like the perfect He's almost Rodney-like in that, you know, the disposition is honest. Yes. And, yes. and you know, whatever it is that he's balancing is creating all this genius. You but, know? But, but look at who we really love, because you said this, and I agree with this totally, is that Maria Bamford's the best of us. Sure. And I think David Tell is, is right yeah, up there. Sure. But two things, one thing they have in common is that they are so themselves the entire time they're on stage, and, we're, and we know how difficult that is. But Dave, you have to decode. To, yeah, you have to decode. But, but if you, Maria, but, yeah. not so much. Maria, right, Maria is right there, but even within her work, there's a lot to decode and, and unpack, because yeah. there's so much, there's so much uh, ambivalence or multi <laughs> it's it's extraordinary, and I wanted to ask you, and I'm I'm sorry for for um, d- guiding where the where our discussion no. goes. But you've mentioned the denial of death a lot yeah. on the on the on the show, yeah. and I and I recently I'm I'm reading it. I'm to the part where he kind of goes in on on Freud, yeah, and I'm past the part where he embraces Kierkegaard, yeah. And so my question is. Is how because that was written fifty years ago. How accurate and and I I think I I know you still believe in a, in a lot of the philosophies within that. But how much of your anxiety has to do with this fear of death, and also what role has faith played in in your ability to get a, a, a handle on it and maybe quell the the anxiety? Well, I think like I think that the some of the points of that thing. There's a lot of you know it's all over the place after a certain point, right? But what I learned the most. Was him sort of hijacking Freud's theory of transference onto the sort of almost innate need for humans as a species to feel connected to something bigger than themselves to give their life meaning. Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind. Whether it's faith or football, who the fuck knows? Right. Now, now but in from term- Kierkegaard, it was, it was faith. Right. But for me, like, you know, I think, you know, faith is, 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 is sort of a, uh, accommodated with some strange kind of um, selfish uh, uh, denial uh, of things. Sure. Like, I, I don't have an organized faith. I'm not a practicing Jew. I, you know, I, I don't generally believe in God. So on, on bad days, you know, I can think there, there, there's obviously, you know, I know I'm not him. And then I know <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that there seems to be some universal order to things. But, you know, m- my faith is, I think, generally founded in, in people, and also a, a strange kind of cynical optimism that you, you know, that I think 
probably wrongly so at this point in history, that things are going to be okay and that humans are, are, are generally good at their core. But I, both of those things I, I've begun to doubt, which makes things a little worse. No, I know. But also, you know, having lost Lynn and, and being that close to, uh, to death and, and the death of someone I love, it's, it's given me a very practical uh, experience with loss. Sure. So that coupled with the other stuff, uh, kind of, it, 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 it's still a very rational approach. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not totally cynical. I, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm a committed atheist, but I don't spend much time concerned with spiritual matters. Right. <laughs> what yeah. about you? Well, I think I, I, like a lot of people my age and a lot of Jews my age, I've, I've cobbled together a sort of the philosophy or, or, religion based on a few of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, sure. the, the the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I, I think, was was very helpful to unto others. Right, I, how to I, behave yeah, it's so like a, civilization a, doesn't yeah, it's eat a, itself. Yes, yeah. it's, a, it's a blueprint for an ethical, yeah. Yeah. Uh, empathic life. And then there's just this, this idea that I first came across, and different people have different ideas for saying this, but it was Kurt Vonnegut talking about his son Mark, who yeah. had survived schizophrenia yeah. and, and is now a pediatrician or a retired pediatrician. Yeah. Yeah. He said, we are here on earth to help each other through this, whatever it is. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that makes that makes sense. That That's sort of, and you can give, and the other thing is I, I love Camus, so I feel like you can give meaning to whatever it is, even if it's pushing a, a boulder up and down a, a hill. Well, and down. also it's like, you know, it's one of the, you know, I believe that cognitive therapy and acting as if is is good. Yeah. I think that you can sort of um you know choose against your instincts if they're shitty. Yeah. And 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 grow into having better habits. Yes. And 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 also I believe that you know being there for other people and I, I talked about this a little in the special, it doesn't take much. Yeah. And and I think that's the big fall in in a selfish culture, because in the special you talk a lot about uh, you know, sort of millennials and the difference between them and, and for good and for bad that, yeah. you know, they, they seem to be more accepting, but they're also more detached sure. in some ways. Yeah. But, but ultimately to show up for somebody else, you know, requires very little effort and, and it, it goes a long way. Yeah. I think th th Twain had this quote where he said the easiest way or, or the best way to cheer yourself up is to cheer someone else up. And there is something about doing sure. these acts of altruism that even if it, it means d delaying your own gratification, it actually becomes gratifying. And, and, it, and, it, and it has made me, me feel better in a, in a lot of cases. I, I just, it, it stopped being that exciting to go on TV shows and do stand-up. Yeah. What became really exciting before the strike was trying to get friends and and comedians that I that I admired on their first TV late night sets. It just felt so good and I and and much better than it feels now going on TV. It's almost like oh it, yeah yeah yeah. It's like helping other people, being of service. Yes, I mean yes. The, the whole premise of of recovery of AA is just you know talking to another alcoholic so you get out of yourself. Yes. And, and, and being of service is very simple, you know, in a lot of ways, if you yeah. can do it. But, you know, ultimately the only issue becomes, especially if you're, you're mentally ill, as, as we are to whatever degree, is that you do have to have some boundaries. Yeah. Because, like, you know, helping somebody else can, you know, uh, can ruin your life. 
Right. Right. <laughs> right. In the sense of like who you let in, you yeah. know, codependency, yeah. what, whatever it may be. Yeah. But, you know, but just you know, in a general way, being of service, it, it's there, there's plenty of ways to do it. I don't do all of them. But I, I think that like what we're doing right now is service. And that's yeah. sort of a cop out. You know, I can rationalize it. Like, do you help people? Oh, yeah. I talk. You know, I talk uh, <laughs> you know. No, but I, I, I feel like I had this obligation after recovering mm. to share what worked for me and also give some people some some hope that I that I owed the world something because I, I I really in the in the depth of it two two and a half years in I thought oh this is just who I'm going to be until I until I work up the the courage to end, end, end my yeah. life and and then when something finally worked two and a half years in I was I was so grateful I was uh, yeah just looking for ways to express that and and give some people some hope but th- there was there was just something that that you were talking about recently with with about the the twelve step programs yeah. and and Vonnegut always talked about this. He said that the only worthwhile religion on the planet was Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said that the key was and I wonder if you agree with this was that it 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 put a governor on loneliness that it it was able to circumvent some of the, a lot of the loneliness which is a lot of the drinking and a, and a lot sure, of the, that's, the well depression. that comes back yeah. to uh you know uh talking to another alcoholic yeah and then the other concept i think that is in, in, the most important really the part of it and this goes back to existentialism and it goes back to uh you know some of the stuff uh, in terms of the the kind of predis- leading up to a spiritual awakening is the idea of powerlessness. Yeah. That, that is the kicker, is, is that, you know, once you realize you're powerless over alcohol because there's no indication that you can do it safely, then you really start to expand that and you realize, like, I have power over almost nothing. You know, we are powerless yeah. over just about everything. Right. And, and that becomes a powerful place to be when, and, and accepting that. You know, getting it in your head that you, you know, that you can't do drugs, that you're powerless over whatever it is you're in recovery for, you know, that you need to know. Yeah. And then, you know, talking to other people is the next thing. And then ultimately they want to lead you to, there's a power greater than yourself. So however you want to handle that is up to you. But, but accepting and understanding powerlessness is, is also the other sort of component. But it's also an an interesting twist and this is sort of epitome of humility yeah and and the strength that i found over the years and i'm sure many of us find in being humble it, i've yeah. never felt stronger than when i felt or or opened up about my weakness yeah yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah that like i i think like i'm 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 i think that like I don't pay a lot of lip service to humility and I still am, am sort of cocky and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, in certain situations, people who know me can get right in, but like in certain situations I can be kind of a dick because I, I like to, you know, I, you know, I say things. Yeah. You know, out of, uh, you know, petty resentment. Sure. That I think are funny, but no, you know, I'm, the sa- I'm the same, I'm the same way, but I think it's obvious to anybody who's taken even a 10th grade psychology class that a lot of our boasting and gloating sure. is insecurity insecurity also yeah. and also like you know sometimes it's just it, it, it'll keep you out of the hole yes so, 
totally totally it's why i'm i'm I, not going I, in go fuck yourself it's why i admire shit talking athletes yeah, so much yeah, yeah. because the, the who knows whether they're scared down deep but there's something driving them to this level that borders on it in the case of the the kobe bryants and the michael jordans they're maniacal yeah they're maniacal well i, I i've never really had that but <laughs> but so it's interesting so the book starts you know you know when you go back after you've had uh uh ect yeah you know, my dad had it, and um, and he claimed that like it 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 it, and it it erased a lot of his memories, but but he has dementia, right? So so like he wants yeah, to he doesn't want to admit that he has right, dementia, but right. he, he's going to blame ECT. Right. The thing with the depression is that it's hard to form memories when you're depressed. So but this book is like you know it's very focused in terms of like fairly specific memories and you oh, yeah. and, and you have them in in I imagine bits and pieces the ones that had an impact on you. Yeah, I I didn't lose a lot of memory. Is that something that happens? Th yes. That you heard? Oh, yes. I have heard a lot of it is short term, a lot of it is things that would have happened around the time I was depressed or being treated for the depression. Right. So my, my doctor says some of these memories, you never really, they never stuck because you, they called depression faux dementia. Really? Okay. Yeah. So because you, you know, it's almost a different, um, entirely different psychological state. Yeah. So it's almost like drinking or a blackout where yeah. you're like, because well, my, my dad would go in and out of rages or in and out of depression. When, when, when bipolar people go up, they're like, that wasn't that bad. It was like what, when you were in bed for three months. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, they become addicted to the, to the mania. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't have mania. No, you I didn't never, have the I, gift, no, the gift of mania. Oh no, no, I was not touched by fire, but I, I did, I did have the depression, which is, is deadlier. So did you find that writing this book, you know, because like, it seems like the framework of it is in the great depression. Yes. This so, is sort of like a prequel to the great depression. Well, it's was, a, it, but it's also, it's a prequel, but it's you going back as somebody who recovered yeah. from depression yeah. and assessing your life. Yeah. In light of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I wanted to highlight some of the sources of my worldview and my outlook and, and where my, my depression started. The first time I, I felt it, maybe I was destined to be depressed at some point, but I remember when my, my father had this, this very arrogant idea that I would have a tremendous advantage yeah. in athletically if I would repeat the first grade. Yeah. And, and I was, I was a precocious kid. I was not immature. Yeah. And so See, I was, so was I, but we're, we're, we're a mess. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I was forced to repeat this grade and, and I was much bigger than everybody else. And I had nothing to say to any of these kids. They were, they were just, they were, they were not fully formed physically nor yeah. mentally. Right. And, and so I was just very lonely and I had a teacher who was cruel and it, and it just, those were the first times when I had suicidal ideation and I, and I felt like life was, was just this nightmare that was not, not worth living. Yeah. And I, I talked about this in the great depressed that Sunday night when 60 minutes would come on and yeah. Yeah, I would. I would just. I would have the panics and and, yeah. and dread and fake illnesses. Yeah, and go to the nurse and be yeah. sent home. And it was. Ju it was just a. It was. A, it was a nightmare, man. I did all that. Really? Yeah, but I didn't get as depressed as you. Oh man, I got. I yeah. I I, I regressed and uh, I remember I just, that, like in camp, like the first time I that my mom took me to camp, I couldn't. I I I was just uh, unconsolable to be left. Yeah. And when my yeah. parents would go out of town when I was like uh, like eight or nine on a trip, I would I, I would 
be convinced they would die in a plane crash and i had to be oh my god i'd be sent home from school i, I mean like it was i used to have this recurring nightmare that the that the bomb was dropped and i was at school away from my mother yeah and so i would i would go out of my way to either stay home from school or get sent home because i didn't want to be separated from my mother and i had no problem going to school in kindergarten yeah and first and nobody noticed that suddenly i had regressed when i repeated first grade they just were not i love the parents now because they're in tuned with their kids yeah. and, and 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 we were we were free range but it's weird because our relationships with our mother were not appropriate or no. or, or 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 you know there was not what because no, it was like, like an eight-year-old husband that, yeah I, there's that yeah you know, that's the thing about it is that they just you, you become an extension of that yes yeah and, and i and, still am oh yeah i'm not <laughs> I still am. My mo- my mother, my Gary, and she feels uh, entitled to comment on my hair and my clothing and everything like like I am just some sort of of reflection right. of her. Yeah, I, still, and yeah. she's ninety. Yeah. There's no fixing it now. No, not my, her. My wife my wife always says you're arguing with her like she's an equal and you're going to change her and she she only knows good, bad, ugly, pretty. And, yeah. Yeah. I just don't like yeah, I've had realizations over time about both of them and you know, I am pretty okay with them. Yeah. And yeah, and, and my mother just is very kind of emotionally very immature right. and and very young. Yes. yes. And, and they're very sensitive and 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 sensitive people for whatever reason my mother could be mean as a snake. Yeah, my mother like can really take the shots. Yes. Oh, my my I I remember at one point being really sick and not wanting to go to some half-assed doctor yeah. she was recommending and she said, "You don't want to get better." And, and I thought, wow, you really can pick the cruelest possible thing yeah. to to say. Yeah, and, it's unbelievable. And, and then and and doesn't understand the impact, and will call me sensitive for for saying how hurtful these things are. My mother's like a horrible caretaker. <laughs> like if you get sick, yeah. it's like she just yeah. doesn't really want to do it. Yeah, yeah. what we'll having yeah. to do with it? She'd feed me, but like, she would. That's it. Yeah, but there that's was nothing. Be, there nothing, was nothing comforting. Yeah, about there it. was nothing beyond that, and and a lot of uh, Bobby Mison's old wives' tales and superstitions about illness and things like. Yeah, I don't just, know, but it's yeah. so it's so fucked up that we still have to. How old are you? Fifty three. Yeah, I'm fifty nine. You still unpack this stuff. Yeah, but there there was a point where where I was able to accept them. Uh huh. And you know, and the triggers got less. Sure. And, but now my dad's you know losing his mind, so that's that's a whole other thing. Right. Uh, but it's weird because you know I don't know about you, but like for years I thought it was my dad that it, was the problem. Yeah. But it, and then all of a sudden one day you're like, oh no. Oh yeah yeah it's yeah, her. yeah. Oh yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. And but I don't. Does your brother? Craig see yeah. it or because my brothers have no idea that oh, he there's a, anything wrong with my mother or father. They, they, oh, they no. think they're saints. No, so, me and my brother. So that's helpful to have somebody to corroborate. My brothers will not corroborate well, the but, insanity but, of my family. Oh, there's only a two and a half year difference and he was younger. Ah, so like I got, I you know, I was the golden child and he got, really? and he took a hit, but he's still, you know, he's gotten very accepting and responsible about things. But, you know, there was a period there where he's like, you know, my father, you couldn't deal with it. Wow, and and my mother, he understands. I always thought he was closer to her. I was closer to him, which or or related to them differently. Yeah, which is probably true. But he's completely on board. He's got all the same problems. Oh, that's I do. really helpful. And he's, uh, yeah. Also, he's, 
he was the spiritual searcher. He was always the proactive one. He was always the one looking to, for ways to get uh, you know, better. He's uh, and where did he land? He's all right. It took a while here and there, up and down. But he's he's you know he you know went through a couple marriages, got a, okay. a, a few kids, and now he, he's in his third you know major relationship, and it seems to be really good. And That's you know, great. she's got a daughter, and everything seems to kind of be working out. But he, you know, arguably. You know, my little brother, who I was like, he was the tennis player, the jock, you know, <laughs> arguably made a bigger mess of his wife than me. And, you know, and I'm proud of him. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it was always like, I always thought I was the fuck up. And then like yeah. in quiet moments over the course of our lives, he would tell me what he was up to. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> You're great. hardcore, you know. That's great. No, but, my, my brothers were so straight edge and, yeah. and married at 25 and had two children each and and no, so my, my I, I was a black sheep. Oh yeah, no, my brother and I are very close with that stuff, and he's, you know, he's all right. Good. Yeah, you know, he landed on his feet. That's great. So, what did you learn in terms of like, you, you know, the one thing about writing which I found great about? It, I hate doing it. Uh huh. I really don't like to write. Uh, but there is a there's something that that happens when you do it that is a level of self discovery that you can't just think. Or vocalize when it comes out of you on paper. You're sort of like, "Wow, did yeah. you find that?" A hundred percent. Yeah, I I would take certain events that I highlighted in the book to therapy that that week or for the next right. couple of weeks and yeah. and discuss them and the impact and and to have a an objective person saying, "No, this is insane for you to be in the." the, the this sounds very petty of me, but. I, I keep telling everyone I was in the top reading group in first grade. I got all I got all A's and and then I find out a week before school starts that I'm repeating this very easy, simple grade. Yeah. And the only explanation is that I'll be better at sports, which I really wasn't that into, and I would have been fine in sports anyhow. And and so my my doctor uh, or my therapist, I, I he's a social worker named Alan Lefkowitz, who mm. you'll find a lot of the New York comedians go to go to him. But he said it's incredibly undermining and it, it makes you lose confidence in yourself and, and you are supposed to trust these people to yeah. have your and so you assume that this is the best idea and then years later you realize and there was there was no accountability and and everybody tells you to shake it off i brought it up with my dad yeah while he was alive and he and he apologized and his explanation was was inconceivable he said that when when he was in second grade yeah. his his he changed schools from boston to new york and his mother said he was in third grade instead of second grade, and he was always overwhelmed by th that experience. Oh, so he's trying to help you. So he's trying to help me, but it was... And and he says, and I fought the superintendent and the principal, and and I said, I know my son, and I always thought, no, you you spent three hours with him on a on a Sunday, and <laughs> and my my teacher was my next door neighbor and had me six hours a day and knew I should be going into second grade, and and it's just to this day I I, I have this this certain malaise yeah. every time it gets to be fall. Because I, sure. I remember how I felt every year going back to school that I didn't fit in, yeah. and, and and that I was. So you're saying that at. hobbled you through for all of elementary school? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I didn't have a close friend until until fifth grade, 
and and so I would just come home after school every day and and I would read or draw and then eventually I found basketball which was the only sport you could practice by yourself and th- and that was that was very helpful I would go to the park and shoot for hours which is is very zen and I would make friends through that but I didn't have a friend who I would go over to to his house frequently until I was fifth grade and that that's just a a, a tough time to be so so solitary yeah but I I think. It it was the the voice in my head. Here was an interesting thing about my dad. Yeah. He grew up in the Bronx, Jewish, mm. fought every day. According to him, there was a fight every day. Somebody yeah. would call him a a, a a Jew bastard or something. Yeah. He would fight them. And he always told me, if anybody gives you a hard time, teases you, pushes you, you hit him and you fight, and that's it. And that's yeah. and 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 I just didn't have that in me. I didn't I I didn't know how to fight. Yeah. And I was afraid of fighting. And and so I just felt like such a soft, weak kid being teased and bullied by the other kids and unable to do anything about it. And also this this horrible letdown to my father. So there was this whole side of my my personality that I wasn't able to share with my dad. And it, and it was and it was it was very sad for me. Yeah, I, I I didn't come from. My dad was an angry fuck, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But you know, yeah. I I didn't. I wasn't in my, culture. My dad was the type. Somebody would give him the finger yeah. on the highway, yeah. and we'd be like, "Up, oh, we're not going to the carnival today." Yeah, he's gonna follow this person until oh, he wow. pulls him over to the side. My my brothers witnessed him pulling somebody out of the car who oh, was yeah. driving too fast in a in a parking lot. I mean, my father was was uh, yeah full of rage. My dad was an angry, explosive guy, but he wasn't like that. He'd take it, you know, he'd yell at us a lot uh, about this or that. Right. I used to do a joke. He used to, you know, he used to have a gun in his car. Oh, yeah. Like, and I I think the joke was like, we just assumed he was going to use it on himself. (laughs) We didn't, we weren't afraid. (laughs) We weren't really worried about it. But uh, it's insanity. But like I'm the same with fighting too, and I got an email from an asshole once that really I can't. I, I think about it all the time because it, it bothers me. And I talk about masculinity a lot on stage me too. now, and and about you know what is what is courage and what is you know I talk about being called a pussy like recently, and I'm like uh, I, I say this guy called me a pussy, and I'm a 59 year old man, but it landed. Oh, I mean, it, it lands. Went, yeah, when you're a certain type of way in high school, it's going to land all the time, oh, and yeah. then you, you go into this weird spin about your 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 masculinity and everything else. And I and I kind of explore that. But this guy wrote me an email about how you know he could tell because I was I, I it was he was at a show where I fucking unloaded on somebody, and he said you know you're you're uh, basically he said you're a pussy. He said when I was a kid. You know, there was somebody who was bullying me at school. And my older brother said, you just go to school and oh, you yeah. fucking punch him Yeah, and 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 take care of it. Yeah. So this guy, the thing that, that sits with me that drives me nuts is he says, I went to school that day and I broke that guy's jaw. <laughs> and then he says, and I became my own hero. Wow. And I'm like, fuck, I'm definitely not my own hero. <laughs> oh, man. But, but. I don't know how, what happened to the other kid, but, but nonetheless, Standing up for himself in that way, you know, gave him a fundamental cognitive change in his ability to stand up for himself. Yeah. I mean, I I talk about in the book, there was one time where I was, I was beaten up. My mother broke it up. (laughs) Yeah. After school. Yeah. And that felt terrible. 
And then later on that year, it, it became clear that I was an easy, an e- easy, easy mark, right? Yeah. An easy mark. That, that, so everybody was challenging me to a fight because I guess it would be a pretty big win because I was taller and bigger than everybody. I just was soft. And so he challenged me to a fight and out of, I don't know where the inspiration came. I just got him in a headlock and yeah. I held him in the headlock until he gave up and, and it didn't feel any better than losing a fight. I, it didn't make me feel strong. It, it, I was shaking. It was, it was, it was, tra- it was as traumatic as, as being beaten up. It, it just, it, huh. it just was, was not my dominance or aggressiveness. Was not my, was, was not my personality. No, I go with a and, full charm offensive. I'm the negotiator. Yeah, you know, yeah. Li- and, I think, and I think comedy helped a, a lot that I would make totally. people make people like me, totally, rather than want to want to fight me. But there, there are those stories of the of the mother telling the son that he's going to have to stand up for himself and going and fighting. And then there are those stories where the 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 kid probably had a breakdown and never felt good about himself because he could never fight. So the, the, these right. things, because my dad did that to me all the time. I'd come in after being beaten up and he'd say, go out there and, and fight the kid. And I just go out there and walk around the neighborhood avoiding right. that. And, and, this and, is, it, and it made me feel horrible. And this is where you get that comparison with evolved parents of, of today in a progressive way where they, they it's a gift yeah in, in in a way but it seems to me not unlike some of the observations i'm making is that it was the patterns of emotional negligence or emotional abuse that really in in the long run become the most traumatic yeah right yeah not the single episodes not yeah you know, it's not yes. it's not about that day you had putting that guy in a headlock no it's the repetition of your yeah. father's point of view yeah, yeah 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 and and every story told from his childhood was about a, a fight most that he won some they occasionally throw in for balance a, a loss of a fight but it was mostly about how how aggressive he was and how angry he was and it and it and it made me feel very very soft and and that I that I didn't measure up in in comparison see I feel soft but it's only for people that know me like you know, a, <laughs> but as i get older more and more people see it like and, and they're just sort of you know the one thing i don't realize is there's plenty of people in my life that you and i have known for years that you you know i'm not fooling them they're just sort of like yeah well mark does that <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah but like i'm having this small birthday party in a couple of weeks and i literally the the guest list is very weird because there's some people i've known a very long time there's some people i've only known a little while and there's some people that i like seeing yeah and i realized that out of the 20 or 30 people that i invited to the party it's really people that don't cause me any anxiety <laughs> that was that's how that that, that yeah. was how i gave the guest list for whatever reason yeah these are people you know whether they're new friends or older 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 friends they don't cause me any anxiety no i get that but but i i have found that one one sort of silver lining to the fact that it took me so long to make friends is is that I I know the value of of friendship and yeah. and so I I'm and I'm loyal and I'm good at it yeah I'm good as a as a as a friend I guess sometimes I, I, I get a little selfish but yeah no I get that but it, it's it just uh, I've learned over the years is it's really when you have a fucked up family, your friends are really all you you have to sure. to get you through. Yeah, and I've had yeah. friends at different stages in my life. Some of them, you know, have stayed in the in the pocket. Yeah, and, and some came later. Yeah, you know, I found that the friends I made as an adult that that stood by me through, you know, divorces and and the death of a partner, 
and and sobriety, you know, they they you know that that means a lot. Yeah. But then I got just I reached out to this kid I went to Hebrew school with. No way. And he's gonna come. Yeah, I got one guy who I see when I go back home to Albuquerque. Oh, that's amazing. Who I've known since second grade. <laughs> We don't, you know, we're, we, you know, we're pretty tight because there's a familiarity, but he's yeah. still in my life. Yeah. So I, I realized yesterday, like, we'll see if he wants to come out, you know. And, oh, that would be, what's his name? David Kleinfeld. Amazing. So in, in looking at the, what did you find in the book was really the, the crux, you know, outside of, of the, the chemical uh, imbalance around the depression, what was it in the book where you're like, well, and we talk about your father. But is there one episode outside of like, you, you know, getting the guy in the headlock that you really sort of hang a lot of, uh, you think back on as being the most traumatic thing? Oh, I, I mean. Or, or it's not, I know it's not all about trauma and some of it's just fun. No, I mean, there were certain things like the, the first time I had, I had been in love with a, with a, a girl uh, when I was in, in high school, yeah. that, that was it. It was very difficult after that to ever really go back into that. It took me years and years to to open myself up to that possibility because it was so devastating and it was and it and it brought about a, a not I wouldn't say it was a depressive episode because the one thing about being seventeen is that you have to go up every get up every day and go to school and yeah. be on a sports team and yeah. you're around people so it wasn't like i was i was depressed like i was at 40s but i i i just i didn't i didn't want to ever connect that way with a with a girl and or and later i i i don't know at what age we're supposed to call them women but the, we were no, boys know, and girls yeah. at, the, at the time but and i just it was, was so hard it devastated me and i had nobody's perspective to say that, that I would say to a boy now, you're going to get to a point in your life, and I think about this frequently with my with my wife. That sometimes she'll be naked in my house, and I really won't look t twice. I, I'm so used to seeing naked women that it's not the end all and be all of my existence. Sure, like it is in seventeen, and there'll be a time where you'll be able to you'll be okay. find women that you. Like yeah. you're not. I was so hung up on sexual stuff that, like, because I, yeah, like, because you know, I had all these, I had friends, and they were all, you know, like having sex, and yes, and, and everyone I was, was having sex, and I was so bad at it. I would come <laughs> in my pants nine times out of ten. I couldn't. <laughs> I talked about that in the book. You did a constant <laughs> premature ejaculator <laughs> and a compulsive masturbator. <laughs> And, and it was just like, it was devastating. And I saw porn way too young. Oh, and I okay. thought like, well, that's how you do it. Uh, and oh. it, had to, it was like, but that was a Betamax. Oh, that that's my interesting. My parents had I, in a I, drawer. Yeah, I didn't get it. That's, that's not good. I, I, I don't think it's helpful to see porn too No, young. it fucks me up. It's yeah. like, but sexual anxiety is plaguing to me today. Even. Sure. Like, you know, you know, defining myself by, you know, I learned how to do it and, yeah. I, and I'm okay at it. And I function yeah. as an adult and I've probably had more sex than most people, but yeah. but the anxiety around it and just being just, just sort of like so anxious, you know, either, you know, coming in your pants or premature ejaculating or not being able to get it up because you're so freaked out yeah. is paralyzing for life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
You yeah. talk about it in the book? Well, I yeah, I talked about that, that a girl liked me and a friend of mine had said, if you play your cards right, you, yeah. could, get, you could get laid. You could have sex. And, yeah, and and I I knew there was no way it, it was going to happen, but, but and, and then one day we were kissing passionately, she was lying on top yeah. of me, and and it and that felt so good and and just I just it. made up an excuse to have to leave because I had I had soiled myself for sure you soiled yourself <laughs> I don't think I, I think you can it's not the same you 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 kind of, you came in your pants I came in my pants you didn't yeah, shit yeah, yeah. right 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 yeah I shouldn't say oh my soiled God. I, you I, have to, I just <laughs> coming coming in your pants is just the worst like I yeah. there's been times where where like I and I had even, to do my own laundry because I didn't want my mother to discover that it, I had, yeah now, my mother like how about discovering the mountain of Kleenex stuck on the side <laughs> of my bed <laughs> Jesus Christ they know they she fucking had, know they had to know that was the the one area that they knew not to shame me in yeah yeah but I just remember there was a time where I was like making out with somebody in my freshman year of college and I came in my pants and I stood up from the bed carefully and I spilled the soda on my pants oh, to be like oh shit smart it- <laughs> that's really. <laughs> It really oh, it's is. just the worst. Yeah, it's just it, you know. No, I just sprinted home. But that's also a compare thing. Like, who knows what people were really doing? But look, there's definitely you not not necessarily well-adjusted people, but people who are not so sensitive that they destroy yeah. themselves over yes. everything. And there were also well-adjusted people, and and that was the great thing about comedians is they would talk about these humiliating things, and they would let you off the hook. And I I think that's one of the great powers of of comedians is they they can let you off the hooks for things like the being being um lonely or on on drugs oh, that's true if you talk about it, uh yeah uh, totally and 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 i would feel i remember barbara swanson was a comedian she i remember was the her. first person to talk about Holy being shit. i on, had not heard that name in so long she yeah. had the big hair yeah 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 and she was like yeah hey how are you she was, yeah, yeah she was the first person to talk about being on prozac and i thought wow how how brave what i'm so embarrassed her? i think she passed away from from cancer at a, at a young age she was Lovely, but I just thought that was a great thing. Yeah. The bad thing is that sometimes comedians don't get let, you off, let you off the hook for for bad, bad things, behavior. like being racist sure. or misogynistic. Sure. Or, or no, that, I think this but, is a good point. I think, yeah. I think, and now I have to, you know, really kind of explore, uh, you know, years of premature ejaculation <laughs> and anxiety-driven impotence as my next one-person show. <laughs> Thank it. you for the breakthrough. I, I love I, uh, it. I guess I'm gonna have to, I've done grief, I'm doing trauma, but now just sort of like soiling myself with cum. How old were you when you read Portnoy's Complaint for the first time? Oh, God, I don't know. I feel, feel like I was in college. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, I was after college, too. I could have really used that book in high school. That would have made uh, I don't know. You know, the, the, the masturbation thing with Jews is a big thing. <laughs> I imagine it's pretty big it with has everybody. To be big with every culture. I we guess can't, so. we didn't invent it. No, we didn't invent it. But I never like I knew early on just from like the Jews that I knew from Hebrew school. We were talking about jerking off when we were like thirteen. That's so interesting because everybody in my sphere denied it right. until we got to college, and then I was on the, this football team, and everybody after practice was talking about how they were going to go back to their rooms and jerk off. Pre- and, and I thought, yeah, and I thought, and you admit that, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, the Jews in my circle were. Oh, weird that's so about. funny. So, do we cover it? I think we covered it. Yeah, I, 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 I really appreciate this. This went deep. I loved it. Well, what else is it going to do? Yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, so, what's this new person show? Uh, Fine Arts tells me you got a, a new a new show going. Well, where you talk I, about class disparity? Oh yeah, that was a special. I I I 
I shot in in Toronto in in June, born on third base, in, w- in which I talk about income inequality and and uh, it, but in terms of where, where how grew I up. grew yeah, up yeah, and, yeah. and things like that. And so when's that, that going to be out? I I hope that it'll be out in December, but we've sent it to the streamers, and I, I may wind up self. Uh, Formatting. What what do they call it? Platforming. Yeah, yeah, and and and, but you've got a a good audience now. I I do, I do. I'm very grateful that this is more than I could have ever hoped for. And I I I was talking about this with with Tignataro recently. I said, and and she agreed. If we were able to maintain this for the rest of our lives, this level, we would be very happy and content. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. Some part of me thinks like, how come not everyone everywhere thinks like me? Yeah. There's part of my being that's sort of like, I don't understand. I'm the most accessible comic around. <laughs> it's not true. Good talking to you, buddy. Same here. All right, there you go. Huh? That was pretty heavy. Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s, comes out tomorrow, September 19th. Hang out for a minute, people. Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here. And when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, WTF Plus subscribers can listen to Gary's first appearance right now. This was on episode 357 from back in 2013. The Comedy Cellar has been a tremendous social boon for me. Oh, it's, it's, very a, it's a great place to, if you, if, to if hang out. If you can sit at the table. Once, <laughs> once you're invited over to the table yes. and you're not one of those, yeah. uh, those people at the other table. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's very interesting because the, there is a table very close to it yeah, but that, it's still that you can not, reach and, and yeah. touch it. But, you can but still don't talk. Bring, yeah, don't bring your chair any closer yeah, than you the You can talk distance. from that table, yes. but, to, but to sit in the corner table. It's, it's, yeah. it's high school cafeteria. It's remarkable. In New York. Yeah. It's definitely a, a special yeah. seat. Yeah, but you you are a strong enough uh, p- performer and, and star that you're able to actually uh, bring somebody to the table who's not even a, a comic. That's a very special level. Not many yeah, people can get me, away with I, that. I, I've had girlfriends where where they will say, uh, "Yeah, you got to be a comedian to sit at this table." So it says more about me, right? Than, yeah. Well, so yeah, but also like I've also brought girls in there, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to bring you. Oh, I don't yeah, want to put you not. through that. No. Like, oh no, because it's, what it's, it's a lot gentler yeah. now. You uh, just don't, you know, you never know when, you know, it, it, it really depends on the mix, but you know, if Patrice was alive, uh, I, I'll sit in another restaurant. Yes. If, I, if I go there with somebody, I'm like, you know what? Yes. Let's just, uh, Mark, you yeah, are, you're a phony bitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to get that episode and all WTF episodes ad free, sign up now by going to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF plus. And this is a slide guitar specifically for Lorraine Newman.
Okay, Lorraine, I'm doing this for you. We know why. Okay. Monkey and La Fonda. 
Cat angels everywhere.